Thank you, Lee, for your welcome, and um, nice to see one or two um, familiar faces there. Uh, today, I wanted to speak about um, the book of Daniel, and I'm, I'm not, I wanted in some ways to speak about many different themes within it. Um, so uh, I'm going to read a couple of passages which um, focus on some bits of it, but I'm going to range a little bit beyond those uh, as well. So um, if you've got the book of Daniel in front of you and your Bible, whether the physical form of it or on your phone or whatever it might be. Um, I'm going to read a few verses from uh, Daniel 6 and then from Daniel 9. So uh, Daniel 6 verses 10 to 16. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open towards Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him just as he had done previously. Conspirators came and found Daniel praying and see, seeking mercy before his God. And then they approached the king and said concerning the interdict, O king, did you, did you not sign an interdict that everyone who prays to anyone, divine or human, within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions? The king answered, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they responded to the king, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the interdict you have signed, but he is saying his prayers three times a day. When the king heard the charge, he was very much distressed. He was determined to save Daniel. Until the sun went down, he made every effort to rescue him. Then the conspirators came to the king and said to him, No, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no interdict or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then just a few verses from... Um, Daniel chapter 9, uh, Daniel's prayer. Verses, verses 1 through to 6. In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, by birth, a Mede, who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, must be fulfilled for the devastation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned to the Lord God to seek an answer by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, Our Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. So there's a couple of um, little sort of snippets from the book of Daniel um, that I want to speak about today. I want to speak about um, the book of Daniel because uh, I want to set it in the context of um, more broadly what is happening in our uh, society at the moment and the way we read that, the way we read the, the, the place of the church within uh, society. I guess one of the things that obviously we all know about, it's no um, great surprise to all of us is that story of a uh, decline of the church in recent decades. Um, 
And of course, those of you who've done your studies in theological college or about to do so, you'll have come across the uh, the secularization thesis. And the secularization thesis is, of course, the idea that that, that effectively church um, religions effectively always decline when they're in more modernizing and sophisticated societies. So if you like, you know, religious decline of church and religion more generally is always inevitable. It's inevitable. Um, and it will always happen. The more sophisticated, the more scientific, the more, um, you know, whatever, whatever gauge you use, that a society becomes, the less religious it will be. And it's really only primitive societies that are religious. The more uh, advanced they become, the more they leave religion behind. And there are various versions of it. Um, some sociologists uh, say basically it started back in the Middle Ages, um, maybe the late Middle Ages. Someone would say, would say it would start within the Enlightenment in the 18th century. Um, some say it started actually as late as the 1960s. Um, so you can find different versions of the secularization thesis. But one of the classic statements of it was um, in that, that poem written by uh, Matthew Arnold uh, called Dover Beach. And it was a poem written in 1867. Um, Matthew Arnold uh, was a uh, sort of mid-Victorian son of um, the famous Thomas Arnold. Uh, you know, who was a, one of the great sort of, you know, um, originators of Victorian Christianity. And this is, he, he, record, he records a, a, an episode where he was standing on Dover Beach, which is a little sort of shingly beach. Um, and he's watching the tide go out. And uh, some of you may know this poem very well, but it's a sort of classic of secularization. The poem goes like this. Here he is watching the tide going out on this beach. He says, listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand. Begin and cease and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. The sea of faith was once too at the full and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges, drear and naked shingles of the world. So there it is, the sort of classic of the secularization thesis. The tide was once in, you know, once Christianity was, you know, the unquestioned sort of thought form of the Western world, but now it's gradually declining. It's inevitable. It's basically going out. The tide is going out. And I guess a lot of the time we tend to believe that. We believe the stories that are told us in the media about religion declining in both private and public life. We believe the figures that are there. But actually, when you think about it, maybe the problem with um, Matthew Arnold was that he didn't really stay long enough on the beach. Because, of course, if he had stayed on the beach, he would have seen the tide go out. And actually, in time, he would have seen the tide suddenly come in again. Uh, and in fact, what I would suggest is when we think about secularization, the decline of the church, that uh, the other tide is actually quite a good one, but in, not in a way that Matthew Arnold intended, because maybe a better model of what's happening and what goes on in our societies actually is this sense of the tide coming in and going out. The church has always been through this. You can actually look back through periods of history where the church has been relatively successful in um, evangelism, in social action, in its place within uh, within society. But then there have been other times when it's declined, it's felt like it's been kind of right at the edges of society, but then it's kind of come back again. You can see that pattern going on all the time. And so that maybe is more accurate in terms of the fortunes of the church in society. Now we are at the moment at a period where, if you like, the tide seems to have gone out. We are waiting for the tide to come in. The question is, what do we do in that time 
while the tide is going out or has gone out. Uh, I was at a conference recently in, um, in Beirut, in Lebanon, which is bringing together Middle Eastern and Western church leaders. And um, uh, we were reflecting together on the theme of exile as a common experience that the church in the West, we often feel that you know, we're in exile. Once we were central to society, now we're marginalized, we have a loss of influence, a loss of power, a lot of importance. It feels like we've been exiled from the center of culture. In the Middle East, they often feel it's actual real exile, you know, being forced to leave their homes and actual persecution. And it's in the context of that, I started to read the book of Daniel again and its experience of exile. And I think what I'd suggest to you today, I wanna to just highlight seven very quick things that the book of Daniel suggests that what we do in a time of exile, because Daniel is in exile. Uh, he is in Babylon. He is um, a Jew far away from home. Uh, he is in this exilic context. And these are seven things which I think Daniel does, which may be good lessons to us as we think about what we do at a time when the tide seems to be going out or has gone out in Christianity in the West as we wait for the tide to come in. So number one, first thing he does is repent. Uh, we read just a few moments ago those verses from Daniel 9, great and awesome God keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name and so on. And of course, the, the prophetic critique of Israel uh, during the time of exile and in the post-exilic period was, of course, that the reason why the church, that, that, that Israel had gone into exile was because God had abandoned them because of their idolatry, because of their syncretistic worship of other gods alongside or even in place of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Either that or because they had presumed on the presence of God in the temple, and therefore because God had promised to be there in the temple in Jerusalem, they could kind of do what they liked. And what Daniel sees in this, this, this moment of, of exile is the, the, the cardinal central importance of repentance and repentance of the people of Israel. Now, if that is something that Daniel recognizes, maybe that is something that is true for us as a church as well, because there may be things that we have done that have led to decline. That we are, it's not just about uh, in a terrible society out there that's turned its back on the church. There are things that we have done that we need to repent of. I was watching recently, and it's sobering watching, you probably should watch it if you haven't done already, the uh, documentary about the um, story of Peter Ball, the former Bishop of Lewis, and the abuse of young men that he engaged in. Um, and it's a shocking story, and we all know those stories of abuse of by clergy of young people, children over the years, and all parts of the church are guilty. And we're all conscious of this. It's not just Peter Ball within the Catholic tradition, it's John Smyre, Jonathan Fletcher, we know the stories. Uh, very often in the church, sometimes we think of you know safeguarding as a bit of one of those little tick box exercises. You know, we've got to do safeguarding training. Every curate has to do it. You have to do it in uh, theological training. You have to do it through clergy life and so on. But actually, safeguarding is is really a spiritual issue, because what it is is it's drawing us face to face with our failure as a church, that when people brought their children to us in the past, uh, we betrayed them, and we abused them that there have been times when people have entrusted themselves to the church as a the body of christ they've entrusted themselves to the church because it's the body of christ and we have not treated them well and that story of abuse that we're all somehow 
implicit in, however uh, distant we feel from the actual abusers themselves, there's a sign for repentance. It's interesting, isn't it, that Daniel kind of repents, even though he himself has not been one of those who has kind of rejected the word of the Lord. It's not, it's not that he is, um, you know, wickedly and turned aside from his coming. He repents on behalf of his whole people. Uh, so there's that, there's, there's, there's that issue, that issue of, of, of abuse. There's the issue of complacency, of the lack of imagination in our church, just doing what we've always done, not keeping pace with God, uh, who is always moving on ahead of us. Daniel doesn't blame others. He says, we have sinned. And therefore, one of the first things I think we need to do, whatever our kind of role within the church, is that first step of repentance and humility and vigilance over our attitudes our care of others, recognizing the things that we have done wrong as a church and being thoroughly repentant in dust and ashes before God for those things. So even before we call on a wider society to repent, and we may feel we want to do that, we may feel that our wider society's got things they need to repent of, Daniel's call is not for Babylon to repent, it's for Israel to repent. And that's maybe our first calling to think, what is that in our church, in our lives that we need to repent of? So that's the first thing I think he does. Second thing I think that Daniel does in this time of exile is to return. In other words, it's to return again to the sources of Israel's faith. And it's, if you like, to rediscover the God of Israel. Um, Daniel 9, chapter 15, verse 15, it says this, Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. Now, what Daniel's doing at that point is he's recollecting the God who Israel serves, the God who called Israel. It's the God who brought your people out of Egypt. It's the God of the Exodus, the God of salvation, the God of redemption. Um, and what happened during the exile was, in fact, that, that Israel went back to its scriptures. It went back to the law. It went back to um, the texts of scripture. In fact, what emerged out of exile was, of course, the, the, the growth of what became known as rabbinic Judaism. Far away from the temple, they couldn't sacrifice any longer. They had to kind of find new forms of, uh, of that. Um, and uh, in the book of Isaiah, there is one, obviously there's a whole debate as to, you know, pre-exilic, post-exilic, whatever it might, might be. But um, there's a lot to suggest that, that, that much of the Old Testament is, is, is kind of written or rewritten in the light of exile. Uh, where, if you like, what Israel does is it learns to worship Yahweh, not just as their own little tribal God, but as the God of the whole earth. And what they do is they rediscover the true nature of the God who has called them. He is the one true God who is invisible, unlike the gods of wood and stone, the idols that are around them. Not just one of the gods, alongside all the other tribal gods of the tribes of the ancient Near East, but the one overarching God behind the gods, the God of heaven and earth. So they, they, they return, they return to the God who called them and who made them. And they also learn about this God. So they learn, for example, that God uses unusual people. He uses Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, to enable the people of Israel to be restored to their nation. And there's a question there for us. What new things do we need to learn about the God who called us? Now, those new things will not be new things that aren't in the scriptures already. But they may turn out to be things that we've not yet noticed in the scriptures. There are things that will turn out maybe to be the old things that we have forgotten. And so what exile does is it recalls us to the need to be focused again upon the God who called us. And it's not to get distracted by other things. One way of putting this is, is 
I think what the book of Daniel teaches us is to be more interested in God than we are in the survival of the church. We can get very anxious about the survival of the church uh, or the Church of England. Um, I mean, one says, I, I, I'm not convinced that God is that interested in the survival of the Church of England. Um, in fact, the more we get anxious about the survival of the Church of England, the more likely the Church of England will not survive. The more interested we get in God, the more interested, the more likely it is the Church of England will survive. There's a book called um, uh, The Church Faces Death by a theologian called Michael Jenkins. Um, and in this book, he says this, the church needs to be self-forgetful, not anxious about its own survival. The church faces death like all of us. The church has always, throughout its history, almost routinely faced death. The church is most attractive when it pursues its own vocation, unconcerned with its own survival. Now, of course, we need to think about the, 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 the statistics and take note of them and so on. But if we get ourselves too anxious about that, and all our focus is upon how do we reverse those statistics rather than upon the God who called us, we are likely to lose the one thing that makes the church attractive, the one thing that makes the church worth being part of. So let's not worry about survival. Let's worry about being true ourselves as the Christian church. Jesus didn't seem to worry too much about his survival, but he wanted to really simply remain faithful to the call of God. And so there is a call here to return to the heart of the, of the faith, to return to discover the nature of the God who made us and called us and to be more fascinated by him than we are worried about decline. Third thing that Daniel does in this time of exile is uh, avoid, uh, and avoid particularly the worship of idols. Daniel 3, uh, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 12, it goes on to say, you know, the, um, the advisors of the king go to him and they say, you know, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods and they do not worship the golden statue that you've set up. One of the great tests in exile is idolatry. It's worship. And of course, there's a great test of what you worship. This is, you know, people, people say they worship all kinds of things, but there's a test to let you know what you worship. And this test is simply this, what will you sacrifice most for? That's the test, that's what tells you what you really worship. Would you sacrifice most for your career, for your house, for your holidays, for your family, for your children? Good things, but then of course all good things can become idols. But would you sacrifice most for Jesus Christ? So that's the question, what do we worship? And worship, of course, is shown not just by what we do in our patterns of life as well. And one of the secrets of the, the early church, I think, was simply this, that it was able to identify the gods of their age and to have nothing to do with them. Now, of course, the gods of the age of the first century were relatively obvious. They were in temples at the street corners, which you could identify. Now it's a little bit more subtle than that. But one of the things, one of the tasks we have as the church in exile is to identify what are the idols that our culture worships that we are then subtly tempted to worship at the same time and then have nothing to do with them and then how do we express our resistance to the worship of those idols for daniel it was things like the food laws it says in you know, daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine so he asked the palace master to allow himself not to defile himself 
it was those patterns of prayer that we read of in the um the passage from, from chapter six uh, where he, he insisted on carrying on praying even though he knew it would get him into trouble those were kind of distinct ways observing the food laws praying publicly those are the ways in which he expressed his worship of yahweh as opposed to the worship of the gods uh, of babylon and that's a task we have to do. It's not always an easy task to work out what are the, the, the idols of the culture in which we live. And you can get that at a granular level. What are the idols of the parish, the community, the, the town, the suburb, the village in which you live? What would people sacrifice most for there? And how as a church do you express the fact that you worship Jesus Christ and not those things? I remember very often, sometimes you hear people saying, you know, well, one of the things we need to do is to persuade people that Christians are just normal. And it strikes me to say that's, that's actually the last thing we want people to think, isn't it? That we're just normal, that we're just the same as everybody else. I'm always struck by that comment by William Willimon in his book with Stanley Howard. You know, the gospel is weird, and if you believe the gospel, you will be weird. Um, so let's not worry too much about being weird uh, if we are in a society where we're called not to be idolaters. Fourth thing is um, adapt. What Daniel needed to, to, what Israel needed to learn was a new place in the world. I was mentioning this a little while ago, how um, you know, Daniel continued to go to his house, which had windows in the upper room, get down on his knees and pray to Jerusalem. In other words, he couldn't go to Jerusalem and sacrifice in the temple any longer. All he could do is to go and pray towards Jerusalem. Israel had to learn to live in a foreign land, to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, in Babylon, in, and uh, in, in other forms of exile as well. They had to find new ways to survive. It's where the synagogue came from, as opposed to the temple as a form of Jewish uh, religious life. Uh, the synagogue focused upon the Torah, the law, as opposed to sacrifice, because you couldn't go to the temple any longer because Jerusalem had been sacked uh, by the Babylonians. And so what Israel did is adapt a new form, new ways of expressing its worship of Yahweh in this foreign land. Now, what does that mean for us? We too need to adapt. We, as a Christian church, are no longer central to the culture in the way that we once were. And we may need to learn to live as a minority within a largely non-Christian society, yet with the heritage of Christendom behind us. So how do, for example, how do we navigate our relationship with other faiths? Uh, you recognize if you're involved in sort of public um, Christianity in, in any way, and I, I recognize this as a bishop, uh, very often most public religious observance now has to be multi-faith in some form. Now, how do you navigate that? How do you do that without compromise? How do you make friends common cause where you can without that you know, slipping into the kind of syncretism we were talking about earlier on? It's learning a new place in the world. That's why we need to develop new forms of church life and experiment a little bit with it. So being in exile means adapting to a new situation, not trying to kind of be like we always once were. Fifth thing, and we're coming towards the, the close here in, in a few moments time. Fifth thing Daniel learns to do is to build. He builds the community he's part of. He seeks the welfare of the city. It's interesting how Daniel becomes a satrap. In other words, he's appointed as a royal official. Uh, the king gives him a, a high rank in Babylonian society. He doesn't worship the king, doesn't bow down before King Nebuchadnezzar, but he does work for the good of the city. In fact, he's happy to adopt a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. It's kind of an interesting one, that, isn't it? He doesn't insist on his own Jewish name, Daniel, but he's happy to kind of use the Babylonian name that's given to him, Belteshazzar. Now, of course, the great classic statement of this in the exile is the one in Jeremiah 29, 
It says, you know, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The temptation in exile is to feel sorry for ourselves, to withdraw, to consolidate, to hold on to what we have. That was the temptation of Israel, just to kind of withdraw from the society in which they were placed, just to preserve what they had. And that's our temptation too, just to withdraw. But actually, no, the, the advice here of Daniel and Jeremiah is to commit to the communities that we're part of. People are still hungry for love, for connection, for forgiveness. People want to change the world. They want to know how to do it. They want to know how to bring about lasting change. And they're vital. They see the church doing this, not just talking about it either. And so part of our task is this thing of building, along with others, the communities that we're part of. Again, maybe back to our parishes in particular, maybe the cities, the villages, the towns that were there. Analyzing the culture in which we live, seeing where it's hurting, finding imaginative ways to address the crises that the culture faces. What is the best way you can bear witness to the kingdom of God in your place? So there's, a, there's the fifth thing that Daniel does is he builds the community that he's part of. He doesn't withdraw from it. Uh, he invests in it and he builds along with others with that, while avoiding the worship of the gods of that nation. Two more last things to say. Sixth thing that Daniel does is to interpret. Well, interpret, that's the my word. In other words, what he does is he analyzes and interprets the dreams. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this series of dreams. And of course, no one can interpret them. No one knows what they mean. Uh, and Daniel is called in, and by the gift of the, of the Spirit, he is able to interpret the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and tells him what it really means. And I want to suggest that in the time of exile, that is also one of the tasks of the church, to interpret the dreams of the culture. What is it that our culture is dreaming about, longing for? What's behind the things that it dreams about or what it fears? What are behind its dreams, its longings? What are behind its nightmares? So loneliness. When our societies ache with loneliness, when loneliness is such a pervasive problem amongst elderly people, young people, so what, what's that about? Is that just about a lack of connection with other people or is it an echo of our ultimate longing for our home with God? Interpreting the dream, the nightmare of loneliness. Populism, what's all that about? What is this kind of rise of populism that we see in Europe, in America and so on? Is it a, what, what, what goes on with this, this sort of dissatisfaction with an amorphous globalized liberalism that's, that's there? Is that about a, a longing for roots for home? That is a longing for the echo of, of, of our true home with God? Climate change. Why do we fear so much the destruction of our, of our climate? What is it people are longing for? Why is the world worth saving? When you look at it, and again, if we had more time, we could explore this a bit more, but uh, it's actually only Christian faith of all the great philosophies of the world that can give you a good reason that the world is good. It's not declining, it's not decaying, it's not sort of some sort of substandard version of reality. The world as created was good in itself. So climate change, what's that about? What is it looking, what is our society looking for? What is behind our society's preoccupation with sex? What's it really looking for behind that? 
In other words, a task of the church in exile is to give a better account of what the culture dreams about, both its longings and its nightmares. So that is one of our tasks to interpret the dreams of the culture. And then the last one is to yearn. One of the things that Daniel does is to, is to pray for a return. We thought about this idea of the tide going out and the tide coming in. Um, we're in a period where for quite some time the tide has been going out. We could look back at the Victorian age and say, well, that was a tide when the time was kind of early Victorian times, the tide was in. Um, and what, what Matthew Arnold saw was the beginning of the turning of the tide and the tide going out again. And we've seen the tide going out since then, but there will come a time when the tide returns again. But it doesn't just happen. Daniel, and again, the return from exile doesn't just happen. Daniel prays for it. Daniel 9, incline your ear, my God, and hear. Open your eyes. Look at our desolation and the city that bears your name. We do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay. For your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people bear your name. Throughout the Old Testament, we get these books of prayers, these books of longing for return, the book of Lamentations, many of the Psalms, the book of Nehemiah, Daniel itself. One of the main activities of Israel in exile was prayer. It was longing for return and a realization they could not affect it on their own, that somehow this was not going to be the result of Israel's strategies for growth. It was going to be an act of God that would enable that return. And so, again, one of the chief activities of the church in exile is prayer. Prayer for renewal, prayer for revival. Psalm 14, that great prayer. Oh, that deliverance from Israel, for Israel would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. And there's a note of urgency and desperation that comes in, in Daniel's prayer. And it comes from the realization that all his plans and strategies are nothing unless God breathes life into them. And I think we need a little bit more of that in the Church of England. Yes, we need our strategizing. Yes, we need our plans. And we're doing quite a lot of that right now at the moment. But almost more than all those things, we need the kind of urgent prayer, the urgent worship um, that longs to see change coming. And that's what we should aim at. So there are my seven words. Um, they don't provide you with all the answers. They provide maybe a little bit of an agenda from the book of Daniel as to what the church does in a time of exile. Repent, return, avoid, adapt, build, interpret, and yearn. Repent of our sins of the past. Return to the God who made us rediscover him again. Avoid the worship of idols. Adapt to a new place in the world. Build the communities that we're part of. Interpret the dreams of the culture and yearn for return and for change and for God to act. And that I think is something of what Daniel teaches us in the times in which we live. Thank you.
Assist me too.